0: streets and limbs, and in the broad highway, and call the maimed, the halt and blind,
1: Session for the morning's session
2: this morning. In my two previous presentations, I have stressed the fact that Satan's most deceptive attempts are against the remnant of the Seventh day Adventist Church, those who keep the commandments of God and have the spirit of prophecy. I want to read from the fifth volume of the Testimonies, page 295. Satan hopes to involve the remnant people of God in the general ruin that is coming upon the earth. As the coming of Christ draws nigh, he will be more determined and decisive in his efforts to overthrow them. This is inspiration, speaking, brethren and sisters. Men and women will arise professing to have some new light or some new revelation whose tendency is to unsettle faith in the old landmarks. Their doctrines will not bear the test of God's word, yet souls will be deceived. That's the tragedy of it. False reports will be circulated and some will be taken in this snare. They will believe these rumours and in their turn will repeat them and thus a link will be formed connecting them with the arch-deceiver. This spirit will not always be manifest in an open defiance of the message that God sends but a settled unbelief is expressed in many ways. Every false statement that is made... Feeds and strengthens this unbelief. And through this means many souls will be balanced in the wrong direction. In the years leading up to the disappointment of 1844, there was great expectation. And of course, time setting was the central theme of some of the things that took place then. Of course, the focus was on the return of Jesus Christ. The expectation was that he was coming back to end this world of sin and suffering. And you can imagine the wonderful (laughs) hope that was in the heart and lives of those believers. At first they set the year 1843 as the date for the return of Jesus. But as 1843 passed into history, they started to review again. And you remember, there in the summer of 1844, Samuel Snow, who had been studying these features, rode in on his horse, came up on the platform in the middle of a presentation, but was so excited about what he had discovered that he asked if he could interrupt the speaker. And there he explained that the return of Jesus would take place the 22nd of October, 1844. His reasoning was without fault, at least in terms of the date, for he pointed out that Jesus, our Passover, had died during the Passover. So the cleansing of the sanctuary would have to take place during the actual cleansing of the sanctuary period, or the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he had carefully reviewed the dates for the Day of Atonement. He rejected the rabbinical dates and took the more ancient Kariite dates. In which the Day of Atonement falls later than it does according to the rabbinical rabbinical calendar. And so he chose October 22, the Kariite date for 1844 of the Day of Atonement. Well, of course, I don't have to repeat to you the disappointment I have often wondered what it would have been like to have been there such wonderful expectations dashed you can understand the expectation building up as they reach towards midnight even though of course we understand that the day doesn't end at midnight but somehow The midnight cry led them to believe that it was possible that suddenly at midnight Jesus would be revealed. But the moments passed beyond midnight into minutes and hours and you can imagine the forlorn experience. And then to face the scorn and the jeering that was to follow in the next days and weeks would have taken all the grace of Jesus Christ to go through that and indeed very few came through. You can understand too, people went back and started to redo their calculations. Maybe that was the wrong date too. And new dates were looked at. But very early, Ellen White had to warn against these new dates. Already God had revealed in unequivocal testimony that 1844 was correct. The event it was depicting was different from that which the Millerite Adventists had expected. This was the change of ministry of Christ from the holy to the most holy place ministry. We had now reached the time of the judgment hour. The time when the records of all would be reviewed who had ever professed the name of Christ. Some of our best known pioneers got a little bit caught up in new time setting and one of them was Joseph Bates. I don't think there is a man who was in the early Adventist church that uh, we could respect much more than Joseph Bates. Of course, as soon as he got the counsel from the Lord, he stopped it immediately. Arthur White, in his first volume of Ellen G. White, the early years, 1827 to 1862, reports upon these time-setting situations. Let me read it to you. He, that is... um, Uh, rather, James White, reported 75 present at Medford. That's Medford um, in New England, not Medford, Oregon. 80 at Washington. That's Washington, New Hampshire. And at Johnson, 90 to 100. That's at the meetings that they held there. One thing that... I'm sorry, I'll have to get a second look at this because it's it's blurred at the edges. I didn't realise that. Um, one thing that... Hmm, what this word is? I cannot tell. Anyway, it's dealing with the moves towards church order seem desirable with the destructive work of Stephen Smith of Unity, New Hampshire, a few miles from Washington. In 1850, he was entering the field of public meetings, but was swept off his feet by the 1851 time setting projected by Bates. Now, while Bates accepted the counsel of the Lord, this Stephen Smith apparently did not. He refused to accept the warning counsel that, was no, that time was no longer a test. Picked up other strange ideas and joined the opposition. At the conference in Medford, Massachusetts, James and Ellen White were met by his works. And this is what James wrote. <coughs> the burden of the meeting was church order, pointing out the errors of S. Smith and H.W. Allen. And the importance of church action as to the course of some of the brethren. Ellen White had a vision. Saw that the frown of God was on us as a people because the uh, accursed thing was in the camp. Pretty serious this time setting, isn't it? That is, errors among us. And that the church must act and the only way to do Brethren Allen and Smith good was to withdraw fellowship from them in their present position. All acted on the light given, all received the vision and even to an individual all raised the hand to withdraw fellowship from them. That's how serious the situation was in setting new times after 1844. I want to read from early writings, page 75. This was written in 1851. And the servant of the Lord had these words to say, Time has not been a test since 1844, and it will never again be a test. The Lord has shown me that the message of the third angel must go, but it must not be hung on time. I saw that some were getting a false excitement arising from preaching time, but the third angel's message is stronger than time can be. Now that seems such a clear and unequivocal statement. You would think that would be the end of the situation. But every now and again, the issue arises during the ministry of Ellen White. And as you know, today, there are a mass of Adventists, conservative Adventists, who are now definitely building up issues on time. In 1864, she wrote this, Early Writings, page 243, I saw that the Millerites were correct in their reckoning of the prophetic periods. Prophetic time closed in 1844 and Jesus entered the most holy place to cleanse the sanctuary at the ending of the days. Now let's look at it in the scripture. Let's come over to Revelation chapter 10 and let's read. Why was it that the pioneers were convinced that time prophecies had ended? You remember, this is the prophecy about the little book. Verse 2 introduces it, talking about the angel and said, And he had in his hand a little book open. Now, there's significance here. Here is a book that is open, indicating that it has been closed, and now it's open. Well, there are many things. We have the seven thunders, which he was told not to write. But in verse 6, And swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Now, we're relating this to this little book. We're trying to identify which little book it is. Obviously, it's a book of God's revelation. Therefore, almost certainly a book of scripture of the Old Testament. And as you go through the Old Testament, there is only one book that is significant in terms of time prophecies. Which book is that? The book of Daniel. It has the 1260 day prophecy, the 1290 the 1335, the 2300, and within that, the 70 weeks, and so on. No other book of the Bible, Old or New Testament, has that kind of time prophecy. And here is the angel holding this little book. And you'll notice that in this time, this is the time of the seventh angel when he shall begin to sound. And verse 8 says, And the voice which I heard from heaven... Spake unto me again and said, Go, take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. funny how it's put the other way around, but in the next verse it comes in the right order. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up and it was in my mouth sweet as honey and as soon as I had eaten it my belly was bitter. Well I don't know what that means but I imagine that's a terrible acidic stomach and that can be most discomforting, can't it? And they probably didn't have any acid powders in those days or tablets. But coming back to it Here is this book. It's a book dealing with time. It's now open. He's told to eat it. But he was warned that it would be sweet and then bitter. And of course our pioneers recognised very quickly that this was dealing with the study of the book of Daniel. The joy it was, the sweetness it was to expect the coming of Jesus and the bitterness when he didn't come in the disappointment. Now, as we move on, there seems to be a lag in those standing up with time prophecies after the 1850s. But then you remember in 1888, the servant of the Lord said that the message that God had given was a message that would bring the loud cry, the latter rain, and the loud cry, and finish the work, and they'd be home quickly. And that was what God intended. If man had accepted, none of us would ever be born. It's a strange thought, isn't it? I'm thankful for the privilege. And yet you think of all the misery that's come since 1888 in this world. There soon will be a generation that will not be born. And I pray that's going to be soon. But after Ellen White had made those statements, again this time setting became a fetish in the Seventh day Adventist Church. They started to predict which day or which time would come. Letter 38, 1888. There were many proclaiming a new time after this. She's talking now about 1844, and now she's warning. But I was shown that we should not have another definite time to proclaim to the people. I have borne but one testimony in regard to the setting of time. I want you to hear that, brethren and sisters. She's borne but one testimony, and that testimony is, don't ever do it. I have been repeatedly urged to accept different periods of time proclaimed for the Lord to come, but I have ever had but one test me to bear. The Lord will not come at that period, and you are weakening the faith even of Adventists and fastening the world in their unbelief. Pretty strong language, isn't it? You're weakening the faith of Adventists by setting times. And you're just confirming the world in its unbelief of the Advent message. But time setters off repeated message of definite time was exactly what the enemy wanted. And it served his purpose well to unsettle the faith in the first proclamation of time that was of heavenly origin. And so what she is now saying is not only is this, there are no prophecies on time after 1844, but it's actually weakening confidence in the time that God has given 1844. Do you realize that that's exactly happening today? I want to read it to you. I can find it here. I want you to hear it. It's amazing how that goes forward, how it repeats, history repeats itself over and over again. This is Brother Charles Wheeling. This was in his September 3 presentation last year, his videoed presentation. Now, I'm not here to be negative on Brother Wheeling or anyone else. Some people say, why mention names? We're in a time when people don't want names mentioned. I tell you, brothers and sisters, we need to know who and what. Paul had no trouble in Colossians chapter 4 of identifying Demas as having left him and Alexander the coppersmith having done him much harm. Ella White had not much trouble in identifying those who had moved away from the truth into apostasy. Now, I don't know why people seem so reluctant to hear the names. It's, uh, I just can't see that that is not what God wants us to do. Now, this is on page 16 of a transcript of his talk. Now, Seventh day Adventists, some Seventh day Adventists, would have you and me believe that Daniel 8.14 was fulfilled October 22 of 1844. But the very language denies that. That's exactly what Ellen White meant in her days. When they start to fix times, they start to deny the dates of 1844, which of course tells you what they think of the spirit of prophecy so here we we find the 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 issues at stake ever since 1844 i have borne my testimony that we are now in a period of time in which we are to take heed to ourselves lest our hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life and so that they come upon us unawares. Our position has been one of waiting and watching with no time proclamation to intervene between the close of the prophetic period in 1844 and the time of the Lord's coming. Is that in any doubt? Is that a clear, unquestionable statement? We have not cast away our confidence, neither have we a message Dependent upon definite time. Now, she's not saying it's only about eight, to, uh, about the end of the world. She's saying anywhere between that period. In 1891, and we have this message, of course, in First Selected Messages 185 to 191. Ellen White counselled the hearers here to do present duties instead in quotes instead of exhausting the powers of our mind in speculations in regard to the times and seasons which the Lord has placed in his own power and withheld from men she goes on to say on the same page 186 of selected messages volume 1 satan is ever ready to fill the mind with theories and calculations that will divert men from the present truth and disqualify them for the giving of the third angel's message to the world. It has ever been thus, for our Saviour often had to speak reprovingly to those who indulged in speculations and were ever inquiring into those things which the Lord had not revealed. On page 87, she says, we are in continual danger. Now remember, this is the message of 1891, and she was counselling those that were now again setting time. We are in continual danger of getting above the simplicity of the gospel. There is an intense desire on the part of many to startle the world with something original. I tell you, brethren and sisters, don't be caught up in so-called startling new discoveries. As I said this morning, don't allow your affections to go out. 188. Truth will never depend in any line that will lead us to imagine that we may know the times and seasons which the Father has put in His own power. Again and again I have been warned in regard to time setting. There will never again be a message that will be based on time. We are not to know the definite time either for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit or for the coming of Christ. She refers back to the vision she had in Camden in 1881. On page 188, this is all first selected messages. And she says, The Lord showed me that the message must go and that it must not be hung on time, for time will never be a test again. I saw that some were getting a false excitement arising from preaching time. Now, I thank the Lord for my upbringing. And learning these things early. Russell and I faced a situation when we were 14 years of age. We were in the youth class at the Hamilton Church. And for some reason, I think rather, looking back in retrospect, um, to poor judgment, they had appointed a brother, Brother Keneally, to be the teacher of the youth class. Now, my best recollection was that he hadn't been at our church very long. Therefore, I'm convinced that not many people knew very much what he believed or where he was coming from. But on this particular Sabbath, we were reviewing a lesson in which the conditions of the day of Noah were compared with the conditions of the <coughs> end of the world. And suddenly he said to that class, If Jesus doesn't come in 1953, this was 1948, I believe. If Jesus doesn't come in 1953, I'm going to throw my Bible away. Fancy saying that to you. I remember Russell and myself, and I think one or two of the other youth, tried to remonstrate with him. But he said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. 120 years of preaching, the last sign was 1833, therefore Jesus has to come in 1953. That's 120 years after the falling of the stars. We tried to, even as 14-year-olds explain this had nothing to do with time, it was dealing with the conditions that existed. I'm afraid, tragically, Brother Keneally threw away his Bible, figuratively at least, before 1953. He got very upset one day at church because he hadn't received his one-year ribbon bookmark for perfect daily study and perfect attendance for one full year. And that was the last we ever saw of poor Brother Keneally. I pray before he died that um, somehow he came back to the Lord. He, as it were, came in. He was there for a short time. Where he came from and where he went to, no one seemed to know. He just vanished. I tell you, time setting is pernicious. And then, as we got a little older, there are these people saying 1964. 120 years from the disappointment. Any of you have anything like that over here in England? We heard it in Australia. So foolish, so poor in the the understanding of the scriptures. But there it was again. I remember explaining to our parents what Brother Keneally had said. And our parents were wise enough to tell us that Sister White had said there'll never again be any prophecies established upon time before the return of Jesus. I'm glad they told us that when we were young. It's something that was a fortress against false theories built on time. In 1957, I was then, I think it must have been just about 24 years of age, and I was walking into the Greater Sydney Camp Meeting there at Blacktown in the outer western suburb of Sydney. And there were three or four men standing just inside, and I could see they were handing out Materials to people as they came in. Most of the people seemed to be very rude to them in the short time I could observe. Either they refused them or they took them, screwed them up, threw them on the ground. I tell you, brothers and sisters, that's no way to react. That's not a Christian reaction. And uh, when I came to them, they offered to me and they saw that I was perhaps a little less negative And they started to talk to me and they explained that the very next year all the faithful were going to Jerusalem. And that all the unfaithful ministers were going to be incinerated. And I remember saying something like this, well next year we'll know whether this is true or not. And with great earnestness those men said to me, oh brother, don't wait. Now's the time to accept. They were members of course of the shepherd's rod. Movement. I'd not met any of them before that time. But as you know, 1958 passed by and that did not happen. When I was president of Columbia Union College, I think the year was approximately 1976, I had a breathless teacher and then a student almost together come racing into my office and tell me that Shepherds Rods were there and they had a whole group of students around them What should they do? And the teacher said, "Um, will I get security to run them off? I said, absolutely not. It's not the way you deal with sincere people, even if they're wrong, is it? At least that's not how I feel we should deal with them. I said, look, leave it to me. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was praying to the Lord to help me to know what to do. And when I got there, it was in the snack shop that they had there at the college They were sitting down three earnest Panamanians, I found them to be, younger men in their 20s, and there are about 30 students around them. Not a huge number compared with the population of the college, but 30 precious students that I didn't want to see to see. And I want to tell you, if you go in and do those kind of things like um, heavy handing, you know what's going to happen. Those students are going to think there's something important that they need to hear more. I didn't know quite what to do. I stood on the periphery of the group for several minutes. And then I heard it. In 1980, the faithful are going to go to Jerusalem. And the unfaithful ministers are going to be burned up. I quickly just edged my way right to where the men were. And I waited for the first slight pause. And then I introduced myself. As pleasantly as I could. And I said, I've been interested in what you men are saying. because, And then I repeated what had happened in 1957. And rather hastily, well, uh, that's true, but Sister Hortoff discovered that that date was wrong and we've had to set a new date well you know within 15 minutes every student had evaporated they could see through it and those three men just left peaceably not in hostility God was so good but I don't have to tell you that 1980 came and it's gone and that prediction has left. One thing I have discovered is always the time setter sets a time just a few years ahead. It's never a long No one says in 2060 the Lord will come. You never see that. In fact, in every investigation that I have done, when the time setting has taken place, it's never been more than five years beyond the point of when they say the Lord's going to come, or probation's going to close, or the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out, or whatever the event is. And that has been true in the past. Here I have some photostats from 1984. Very marvellous. Complicated and uh, sophisticated charts. Can you see a date at the top? Any of you close enough to see that date? This was the proclamation of 1984. 1984. All this material is out of a big broadside, large, many page broadside that came out of the west coast of. California by a group of earnest people that the real date, the true date, was 1987. And you've got the spring types and the fall types. Here it is again, 1987. Here is the comparison of the 1335, the 1290, the 1260. All of them Coming back to one point, and that is a literal days that all would end October 6th, was it? 1987. Here's further evidence the 2,300 days was brought to bear on it, too. I wish I had more time and I could read you some of the reasoning that they gave, but all associated with the Jubilee and the feast days. Here it is again. Time setting. Jubilee, 1987. This was quite a big thing in the States. It may have been over here too. That was the front page of the, or the top of the front page. Jubilee. Then commenced the Jubilee, and what's the date again? 1987. Here's an even more complicated chart. You know, the charts that God has given to us have been relatively simple. Even the 2,300 day prophecy chart, you can teach that to a child. If you were to look at this and all the dates that are here, going back, it's mighty hard. to. But there's a lot of hard work and um, effort that has gone into that. Let me read you some of the things that were written at that time. One, we must look to the seventh month as the final fulfilment of the second advent. Two, we must look the 50th year, I presume it means to the 50th year, the Jubilee, jubilee year for the beginning of the millennium and the second advent. There can be no other year he simply cannot and will not come in any other year. Otherwise, we make the creator of heaven and earth a liar. Pretty strong language, isn't it? That's dealing with 1987. This is more recent things. I mean, these people, Brother Anderson was talking about us being certain, and we should be. This man sounds pretty certain, doesn't he? But we must be certain of the word, not this speculation. There is simply no getting away from the importance of these two principles. Those who reject these fall feast days as the ultimate in prophetic interpretation cannot, and I stress cannot in capital letters, understand any of the warning message, any of the other prophecies, including the 2300 day prophecy, and cannot give this final warning message. Their faith is built on sand and a nebulous pop cycle that begins at a three and a half year period. Some place beginning and some place ending. Beware how you treat those marvellous four feast days. For they reveal truths as wide and as deep as the entire plan of salvation. Adventists are not Adventists unless they know the importance of these events. And it goes on. This is from a man by the name of Fritz Alseth. Here's another interesting letter I can only from one of the men I can only read you part of it because of time but this was also written um, in 1984 If I don't believe in the fulfillment of the jubilee in 1987 then how can I honestly claim to believe that the SDA church is the remnant church you see how strongly they believe this. If you have rejected the Jubilee 1987, then you must classify yourself with those whom the prophets say bows down to Satan. If we reject the coming of the Lord and the beginning of the millennium in 1987, we've got to classify ourselves with those whom the prophet says bows down to Satan. <coughs> and these people were how strong. For the Jubilee has ten to a hundred times the conclusive proof that the 1844 movement had. In other words, the 1987 movement had ten to a hundred times the proof that the 1844 movement had. Uh, I'm sorry, I said October 6th. It was October 3. If you can see that the Jubilee must occur on October 387, since events have not occurred as most had expected, then there are certain events which must happen before that time. And then it goes on to detail what all the lead-up events that would take place between 84 and between 87. And then... He ends. Uh, the man who wrote this is John Morrow. Now, one of the sad things—some of you might want to investigate this a little if you're not familiar with it. Some of the sad thing is that every leader of that 1987 movement is now comp- has completely denied the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I was up in Oregon recently and had marvelous experience up there one of the most thrilling experiences that I've had and I've had many in the last 12 months but there I met some of the men who knew the leaders of this movement and one doctor told me he just recently talked to one of the leaders of the 1987 movement and this man said at least I succeeded in getting many people out of the seventh day adventist church How can you be thankful for a movement that's proven to be so false? Now I don't have to tell you that the two most common dates that are being set today are 1994 and 1996. Probably the 1994 date. We have quite a group within a few miles of Heartland that are just torn up on this situation. That's very sad to us. I offered to go and talk with them and dialogue with them and they wrote me back a no thank you very much. And I couldn't be... I mean, they're nice people too, that's the problem. And they're splitting a church over And every one of these movements is beginning to lose confidence in Ellen White. You got him. She's made too many statements. 1892. I have no specific time. This is um, first selected messages 192. I have no specific time of which to speak when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will take place. My message is that our only safety is being ready for the heavenly refreshing. Oh, how much time has been wasted! through giving attention to trifling things. And she's talking here about setting times. In 1983, uh, sorry, 1893, she wrote this, Test me to Ministers 40, 54 and 55. Let all our brethren and sisters beware of anyone who would set a time for the Lord to fulfill His word in regard to His coming, or in regard to any other promise He has made of special significance. So she's counselling out everything here in this statement. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in His power, His own power. False teachers may appear to be very zealous for the work of God and may expend means to bring their theories before the world and the church, but as they mingle error with truth, their message is one of deception and will lead souls into false paths. They are to be met and opposed, not because they are bad men, but because they are teaching teachers of falsehood and are endeavouring to put upon falsehood the stamp of truth. What a pity it is that men will go to such pains to discover some theory or error. Instead of teaching truth, they let their imagination dwell upon that which is new and strange and throw themselves out of harmony with those whom God is using to bring the people up upon the platform of truth. They go off on a tangent and Jehu-like call to their brethren to follow their example of zeal for the Lord. 1894, so it was still going on. First Selected Messages, 191-192. God has not revealed to us a time when this message will close or when probation will have an end. Now, either you believe that Ellen White was inspired or not. You know, I took this issue up in Brisbane in December, in November last year. And after I had finished, a brother was quite exercised about it. And I just asked him one question. Brother, do you accept that Ellen White is a true prophetess of God? That's the issue. The inspiration of the spirit of prophecy is at stake in this. And he said, I certainly do. Well, I said, you have to sever every connection with those who are setting times today. Whether he did or not, I do not know. When Ray DeCarlo and I were down there in Arkansas recently, maybe six or eight weeks ago um, at a camp meeting, we both spoke on this issue. And that was a hot nest of futurism. We were both up in Kettering, Dayton area of Ohio and that's a hot pair of it. It's But praise the Lord, there were some that came to us and said, never again will we fall for this. But others said, no matter what you say, we're going to hold to this. What are they going to do if it doesn't, isn't fulfilled? You see, as you look at it, If they keep making many more dates, someone by accident is going to hit the right date. I'm not saying that in humour, it's just going to be a possibility. Because Jesus is coming very, very soon. But God has made it clear that those things which are not revealed, we're not to speculate upon. Again, I'm reading still this article, this statement from First Selected Message 191-92 192, 190, 192 of 1894. In response to letters of inquiry, asking if she had received special light on the date for probation to close, she said, I answer that I have only this message to bear, that it is now time to work while the day lasts, for the night cometh in which no man can work. But there is no command from anyone to search the scriptures in order to ascertain, if possible, when probation will close. God has no such message for any mortal lips. He will have no mortal tongue declare that which he has hidden in his secret counsels. It's quite clear, isn't it? In 1896, a crisis has arrived In the government of God on earth. God gives no man a message that it will be 10 years or 20 years before this earth's history shall close. If it were 40 or 100 years, the Lord would authorize no man to proclaim it. He would not give any living being an excuse for delaying the preparation for his appearing. For this leads to reckless neglect of opportunities and privileges to prepare for the great day. Every soul who claims to be a servant of God is called to do his service as if every day might be his last. Let him be guarded that he does not presume to feed the flock of God with food that is not appropriate for this time. Jesus said, Behold, I come as a thief. Here is the great burden to be carried away to every individual. Are my sins forgiven? Has Christ, the burden bearer, taken away my guilt? Have I a clean heart, the righteousness of Christ by faith? Woe be to any soul that is not seeking a refuge in Christ and conforming the character to the character of Christ. Woe be to all who shall in any wise divert the mind from this work and cause any soul to be less vigilant now. There must be no long discussings Discussions presenting new theories in regard to prophecies which God has already made plain. You know, you can go through those statements. Some people say, well, we cannot know the day nor the hour, but we can certainly know the year. Is that what Ellen White said? No. She denies that. And we have to be so careful not to go beyond what God has given to us. There are many more statements, 1896 again. It seemed to be even after the turn of the century, 1900, she had to give another warning on this, this topic. But we seem to have a lull in this time setting. But now, the 1980s, again, Satan has revived this false approach. And men, to God, I believe, has given a mission. I wrote two pleading letters to Brother Wheeling before he was disfellowshipped. Pleading with him to turn away from this approach. I wrote one October 29 last year. I want to read to you some of the things I wrote to him then. This was just before I went back to Australia in November and the second letter I wrote January 16, after I'd returned from Australia and realized that he was in imminent danger of being disfellowshipped. Dear Charles, I received a copy of the transcript of your September 3 address, and I am deeply concerned by it. It is filled with so much speculation, and I know how important it is for each one of us to hold true to the great truths that God has presented to this church. It is obvious that you are moving further and further away from the pillars of our faith and from the interpretation of the pioneers of this church, which Ellen White said was laid so firmly at the beginning of our history. But more than that, it is obvious that you are now moving away from the acceptance of Ellen White. This is a deadly mistake that will totally destroy your ministry, but unfortunately take others with you. As I wrote this letter, my mind went back to Bob Brinsmead. Having been so close to what was happening there, there were myriads of people that we soon discovered were not married to the message of Brinsmead, they were married to Bob Brinsmead. And when, in the early 1970s, he did a, a double somersault and went from a platform that was at least very close to truth to the, what we today call the New Theology, I couldn't believe some of the people that went with him, just did that flip-flop with him. It was tragic. Some of Russell and my dearest friends, salt of the earth Adventists, generation of Adventists, today they right out of the message altogether because they followed a man. And somehow these men are charismatic. It doesn't matter whether it was Ford or Brimsmead, whether it's Charles Wheeling. These are men of great charisma. And people somehow tie themselves to the man. Remember what we read this morning. Let take heed that no man. God knew that men were going to be able to deceive certain men. Oh, I pray that no one here is following any man. No one. It's important that we listen only if it's the Word of God. Check things out. I'm going to read you something shortly that will show you how carefully we need to check things. I learned that over Dr. Ford. But let me finish this letter. Charles, you have done a marvelous work in terms of the great controversy. We have supported you in that. Some of our students and others have helped distribute America in Prophecy. Indeed, Our Colporter Porter rally this week, we have used American prophecy as one of the books that we have been presenting to the people. But the intent of what you said in that paper indicates you no longer have faith in Ellen White and her prophetic utterances, many of which are in the book Great Controversy. I mean, to deny 1844 and the 2300 days is to deny what Ellen White says in the book Great Controversy. Is that clear? Uh, no doubt about it. This is what is confusing people. I, when I was up in Oregon, um, two young ladies came to me, and they said, "But Brother Wheeling's done such a wonderful work with the Great Controversy," and I agree. I can't tell you why a man who has been spearheading getting out millions of great controversies could now, in public, be denying the very truths that that book contains. But I'm here to tell you, it's, I, not, I saw the video. Someone bought, sent the video to me of that meeting. And then I got it in black and white. Because, you know, sometimes you can miss on those videos. But when you get it in black and white, you can go back and check it and recheck and see whether it's just a misstatement. But when you find over and over again, the statements are moving in that direction. You recall that over three years ago, we dialogued on this. I had pled with him um, well over three years before this. Charles, don't continue in this speculative theology. There's too much settled truth. And he said, I don't tell the people it's final. I said, you mightn't tell them that, but many of them are accepting it. As if it's gospel truth. And I said, if you do not uh, have certainty on this... Please do not preach it. So I'm reminding you of that. You recall that over three years ago we dialogued on this and you indicated that you were not presenting these things as final, but as possible answers. Then I warned against such an approach. There is so much sure truth without presenting to people that of which we are not certain. Do you believe that? The sure truth that Brother Anderson was talking about. And for many, what is said as a theory becomes accepted as truth. Be careful not to be influenced by human approval. God's word is final. Charles, you are needed, and all the few that are being faithfully moving forward at this time have been needed to push forward this great message that is as clear today as it has ever been. Indeed, in my mind, the certainty of the message is much more obvious than it has ever been. I just earnestly entreat you to come back into the stream of prophetic interpretation that the servant of the Lord has endorsed. There are no ifs, buts, or maybes in that it is pure, unadulterated truth. It is my burden for the finishing of the work that causes me to write to you, for yours is a ministry that can be very powerful at this time. May God uphold you, bless you, and sustain you, yours in the blessed hope. Part of that letter apparently was read at Charles's disfellowshipping hearing, and Charles missed Perceived that somehow I had written a letter to the pastor of the Clanton Church on his urgings. But it wasn't that at all. The pastor I, and I had had a couple of dialogues on the phone. By the way, I found the pastor to be one of those few very basic Adventists that truly believes in, in these messages. But um, the thing that troubled me was that when the pastor spoke with Charles, Charles said that I'd written him a very negative letter. You can see that wasn't a negative letter. So I said, well, pastor, I'll send you a photostat so you can see for yourself what I wrote. And apparently the pastor used part of that, and he thought that I must have sent that letter so the pastor could use it against him. And and that was never in my mind, of course. My burden was to stop that. In fact, January 16, this is what I wrote to him. I have just returned from an itinerary through Australia and New Zealand, and I see that the issues concerning yourself are getting more critical. From what you say in the letters that you have been sending out, you believe that you are facing imminent disfellowshipping. Once again, I want to make an appeal to you. I believe that there is every prospect that all God's faithful warriors will be in danger of disfellowshipping from his church. But it is one thing to be disfellowshipped for truth. It is another thing to be disfellowshipped for error. I want us to get the difference. Elder Cancellor has spoken to me a couple of times on the telephone, and as I have probed him, I sense that he is a man who truly believes the third angel's message. He is one of those rare pastors who is committed to God, to his truth, and to his righteousness. He believes in victory over sin. I was very, at least in our dialogues on the phone, he very strongly confirmed this. He is appalled that Dr. Ford still has his membership within the Adventist church. Um, Of course, I don't know his heart, but I can only say what I have dialogued with him, and I really probed him. I really believe that he is sincerely burdened by the situation that has been created in your church. I believe you have a marvellous opportunity down there that I wish we had here around Heartland to work, work with a pastor who is firmly supportive of those who are standing for truth and righteousness. I realise that Elder Cancer will not always be there and it could be that in the not-too-distant future that no matter what happens, you could be facing disfellowshipping. I would love to fight for you and your membership in God's Church. I think all the straight testimony ministers would be willing to do that. But while you continue to teach that which is clearly opposed to the spirit of prophecy and even the prophets of the scripture, it ties our hands. For we are placed in a situation where we have to be honest and say that we cannot support the errors that you are preaching. I believe your situation could be solved very easily at the present. One, come out clearly and unequivocally with a total affirmation of the inspiration of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, retracting those statements that cast grave doubts upon the integrity of the prophets. Now, what I was referring to were statements that he made in that, must have too much up here, uh, that he he made in that uh, particular passage in which he questioned Couldn't have disappeared that quickly, could it? Here it is. When you get statements like this, it's troubling. This is on page 19 of the transcript of the talk. Our fathers have looked at these prophecies and they have applied them and they have insisted dogmatically that these are fulfillments. And not just our fathers... Our prophet. And that makes it even more painful. I mean, I can admit my father was not always right, but when I start suggesting that my prophet wasn't right, you know, when you come to those statements, it's serious. Very serious. Well, I never did get a response to either of the letters that I wrote. I'd have liked a response. But I want to tell you, there are many, many people married to Charles Wheeling. Now, there's no question that once Charles Wheeling preached some very precious truth. But that's why you cannot hang on any human being. Because they may change but the Word of God doesn't change. That's the difference between the two. I know we're going to have to close this. I want to take up some of the other issues. Perhaps we'll have to do it later. But we have found about 30 clear statements in the spirit of prophecy against this time setting. That should be enough. In fact, you wouldn't need a quarter of those to be enough. Here are four summary points. After October 22, 1844, there can be no definite tracing of the prophetic time. Two, there will never again be a message for the people of God that will be based on time. Three, We are not to know the definite time for any promise he has made of special significance in the area of the return of Jesus. For those who pursue this forbidden computation are characterized as false teachers. So all these things come through. You know, in 1987, when we wrote this book, Keepers of the Faith, or 88, we put in a whole chapter called Futurism. If you don't have that book, you should get that book. It's This deals with 20-some of the errors, the deceptions that are attacking the Adventist church today. And then in this book, we go through the prophetic interpretation. Antichrist is here. We also trace the origin of this futuristic interpretation. I want to do a little bit of that tonight. Why is it so deadly? Why is it impossible to hold to this futuristic interpretation and not be led towards the Jesuit, deceptive concepts of the Antichrist? The use of literal calculations rather than year, day, year principle came right out of the heart of the Jesuit theology. And um, this book traces that origin. And I hope that those that don't have those two books will certainly get those, those books. And trace it through. This is a major movement. I'm not just talking about Charles Whelan. I'm not just um, talking about um, one or two. You've got Dr. Housley, you've got Dr. Uh, Ruling, you've got um, Marion Berry, you've got, um, oh, this man up in, you've got Larry Wilson. How many of you have heard of Larry Wilson? He is sweeping groups everywhere. I was just reading again some of his statements. <coughs> he denies that, um, that Joel too had any kind of fulfillment in Acts 2, it's just that Peter made a mistake. <coughs> I want to tell you, Christ said that Elijah had already come in John the Baptist. That didn't completely fill, fulfill the Elijah message, but it was a type. It was a first fulfillment. And with Joel's message, certainly the early reign was a fulfillment. But then you get, he comes to Hebrews 9.12, a very sensitive text, as you know. That's where the NIV and the, NIV, the New King James both translate Tahagia as Most Holy Place. They're saying that Christ went into the Most Holy Place on His ascension. Now, if that's true, if He began His ministry in the Most Holy Place in AD 31, the Adventist Church is a myth. It's as simple as that. Now, in the book, Adventism Unveiled, and I'm thankful to see that you've got them. We don't have any back at Heartland, but they've got them here. We go through that and show... How wrong it is to translate Tahagir in that passage as most holy place. But Larry Wilson has this to say. Some Adventists will argue that the translation of the Greek text above is faulty as rendered by the NIV. Certainly here is one that will do that. However, the NIV is not alone for the New English version, the the Berkeley. And the Moffat translations all indicate that Jesus is ministering in the most holy place. I wouldn't care how many translations said it. But when I saw this, I just happened to read this with Ray to color. I said, Ray, stop it. I said, you know what this is saying? It's saying the New English version, the Moffat and the Berkeley all translate to Hagia, Most Holy Place. Now I might have overlooked that, except that I knew full well that the NIB, NEB translated at Sanctuary. Not Most Holy Place. I said, we'd better look up the other translations. We looked up Moffat, it said Holy Place. And yet, 99 people out of 100 will not check this they'll take it as gospel truth that these translations are saying it. Desmond Ford was the master at making a false statement and putting four or five texts after it. References, not texts, just the references. And everyone believed that it was proof beyond any doubt. I got to the place where every time I checked the text and most texts had nothing to do with it. Here is another example of the same thing. I haven't had a chance to get a Berkeley Bible. I don't know what it says. But at least I know in two of these that are being used, the New English and the Moffat, he is dead wrong. Oh, I tell you, you've got to be careful in these, these issues. And then you'll notice another statement. There is no scriptural evidence in any of Paul's writings showing that he understood the 2,300 days prophecy would be fulfilled in 1844. Now what kind of a statement is that? What was, what was the state of the book of Daniel at that time when Paul was writing? Closed book. So you wouldn't expect him to have said it, but it throws doubt again. Applying these two tests to Ellen White and finding she is incorrect on some chronological chronology does not diminish her work. Well, it would diminish it as far as I was concerned. It's just showing that she's wrong on her chronology says he has. And you go on, these men and they have such followings. But always they lead away from the spirit of prophecy. They lead away from believing in inspiration. I have been burdened by a group saying look, we must not um, find our answers in the spirit of prophecy we must find them in the Bible I said to them you're not finding them in the Bible you're finding them with, in Larry Wilson's writings you cannot do that brethren and sisters they're rejecting the spirit of prophecy and taking hold of a fallible finite and in error and error um, and in error human being. I don't know where we are at the moment. There are, I would say, probably in the range of thousands, certainly hundreds, many hundreds of our believers, maybe well beyond that, who are pretty well convinced of these time settings. Ellen White said, very quickly, eventually they're going to set a time beyond the time when Jesus comes. And they're not going to be ready. So, I don't know which date's going to be beyond it or when it will come, but she predicts that they're going to set a time beyond her come, His coming. I don't know whether Christ will come in 80, in 94 or 96 or what date. She said we shouldn't say that he'll come in one, two or five years. Neither should we say that he will delay for ten or twenty years. We don't make any predictions on time. But we can know that we're at the very end of the end of time. And let's read it in conclusion in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 2, it says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. That sounds as if we would never know. But that's not talking about God's faithful people. That's talking about the world at large. For when we come down to verse 4, it says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. And so for the Christian, we know that Jesus' coming is near very near. We're at the end of the end of time. But let's not spoil what God wants to do. It makes logic, ever so obvious logic, that the Lord doesn't give us an exact time. Because all of us would then just focus on that time and we'd say, well, we've got another six months to get right or you know, God wouldn't want us to do that. And Elamite makes it very clear that that's why God has hit that We would not use that information for profit. We might think we would. We might say, well, here we are. We're going to get out to the world and do this. But we wouldn't use it for profit, she says. And so God has chosen not to reveal it to us. Doesn't matter whether it's a close of probation, whether it's the sending of the Holy Spirit, which means the latter rain, or whether it's the return of Jesus. God has not given us any exact dates on any of those events. In um, Keepers of the Faith, we quote a statement where Elamite says that this is diverting the minds of the people from their preparation. It's exciting, but it's not preparation. God wants each one of us to stand true by the principles that he has given to us. I have been impressed over the years at the solidarity here at Gaisney on the issues of truth. Not every group has remained as united. In Australia, the, the people have been split all over the place, and if I had to pinpoint when that split came, it was when Charles Wheeling made his second visit to Australia. Whereas they were getting 800 and so on people in Sydney, today you're lucky to get 200, maybe 250 people in Sydney at meetings. It just absolutely collapsed. The group would divide it. And I pled with them, don't bring him out a second time. He is now changed. He is now, well, we'll tell him not to speak on these things. Famous last words. And um, now it's so difficult to get the faithful, especially in Sydney, together. They were so strong, so powerful. Probably the strongest single group that I can ever remember anywhere, in size and in thrust. But that time setting has destroyed them. Split it and divide it. Satan is seeking to divide and conquer. That's his way. Now we must stand for truth. Truth never divides. But truth, when held, will show the division that error has brought.
3: Amen.
2: And I pray that each one of us here in England, because Satan's got, got his eyes set on gazely, you can rest assured about it. going to do everything to try and divide you apart. This is the kind of thing that will divide you. False prophets can divide you. It's dividing all over America today and in Australia. We must not let that happen, brethren and sisters. Remember, when something new and fascinating comes to you, even if it really is tintillating and thrilling to your mind, don't let your affections go out to it. Hold back. Say, Lord, keep me calm and keep me reserved until I can study it, until I can talk with other brethren that I know are faithful and who may be able to lead me to what your counsels are in your word. It's not that you listen to what the men say per se, but it's when they direct you to the counsels that God has given, and you study them, that you may have overlooked yourself. That's why we counsel together. What one person has studied, another hasn't studied. What one remembers, another's forgotten. And that's why we counsel together. This truth, as I said, is simple, it's straightforward. Oh yes, it's more glorious, it's fuller, it's more complete, but it's not speculative. It's not complicated. God is asking each one of us to remain faithful to the truth and not be turned aside at these last moments of earth's history. Whosoever shall endure to the end, let us not forget it.
1: bring our meeting to a close for the singing of hymn number 613 from our hymn sheet. We only have the, the new hymn book, it's 310. I would draw nearer to Jesus. we can rely on, like Jesus. No human can take his place in our hearts or in our thinking. Lord, we thank thee that we've heard thy message more clearly this afternoon, that we know that the devil is doing his worst or his best to try and deceive us. And if it were possible, even the very lest should be deceived. Lord, we would hardly consider ourselves in that category. And yet, Lord, you have called us to that category. And so, Lord, as we think on these things, help us to place our hand in thy hand where it is safe and secure. And so, Lord, be with us now. Bless us and keep us Faithful until Jesus comes. Help us not to be turned aside either to the left or to the right, but help us to keep straight on. Like the vision that you gave to your servant, where there was a narrow path, and those who kept their eyes on Jesus went safely up that path, but those who turned aside and looked down fell off. Lord, help us to be faithful and true to you and look steadfastly to you, so that we may reach that heavenly kingdom and stand with you in that day. These things we pray with all our hearts. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.